Let's go ahead and pray together. Father, thank you for sending your son for us. Thank you for making promises and keeping them, every one of them. We thank you that Jesus is our great king, and we pray that we would honor him, obey him, love him, trust him, uh, more so because of what we see today in your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. <clears throat> All right. Well, we're uh, on our next to last week in this class. It could have gone on much longer, probably should have, but I stretched it as it was, so... Uh, so this is week 13 on studying God's covenants, and uh, me being gone last week, it was kind of the worst week possibly could have been gone, because it's like the hardest, it's just awful. Uh, in terms of the Mosaic Covenant, that, that should have taken three weeks at least, but I, I couldn't, because we need to move on. Um, so, anyway... I'm very thankful for Jody to step in and teach last week for me. Remember what a covenant is? A divine covenant is a bond in blood sovereignly administered. Last week, you looked at the Mosaic Covenant, God's covenant with Israel, which is mediated through Moses, and you saw that the Mosaic Covenant was directly, organically related to the Abrahamic Covenant. Remember that? The Lord caused the sons of Israel to become great in number in Egypt, just like he said he told Abraham would happen. And then he rescued them from Egypt because of the Abrahamic covenant. That was the plan from the beginning. And then the Lord brought them into the land he had promised to Abraham and his descendants. And then the Lord was constantly with the people of Israel, even in the wilderness. So promise of people, land, and his presence. And even in the wilderness, as they're wandering around as a consequence of their rebellion, remember, God is with them. He's with them in the tabernacle and the pillar of cloud and fire because of the Abrahamic covenant. And so those are the promises of God's covenant with Abraham, seed, land, and God's presence. And in the Mosaic covenant, God took Abraham's very large extended family because that's what the people were. He took God's very, uh, Abraham's very large extended family and makes them into a nation. All right, so being a, being a very large extended family is one thing. Being a nation is something else. And that's what God does in the Mosaic Covenant. He made them into a nation with external laws and regulations and ceremonies and one of the purposes of that external system was to preserve his people and to keep them separate from the nations who did not worship the Lord. And you also saw last week that God's covenant with Israel through Moses was a gracious covenant. It's a manifestation or an administration of the covenant of grace. The New Testament tells us this. The New Testament tells us that the law comes, the law given to Moses comes to point forward to and to prepare the way for the ultimate fulfillment of the covenant of grace, which is Jesus Christ himself. And there are some passages here that Jody told me you, he wasn't able to get to last week. We're going to read these real quick, real quick, all right? But I don't want to just leave them un, unread. So here we go. 
The Mosaic Covenant is an administration of the covenant of grace, right? It has, has gracious purpose in it. So this is Romans 5. The law came, the law came in so that the transgression would increase. So one of the things that the law does, it doesn't just reveal our sin and define our sin. Because we're sinners and we hate God, it actually aggravates and stirs up our sin. That's what it says. The law came in, and there's other places that say this too, all right? The law came in so that the transgression would increase, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So that as sin reigned in death, even so grace would reign through righteousness to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. There's a purpose in the giving of the law. God's, one of God's purposes is to aggravate sin, to strip away all hope of our own righteousness and to leave us with nothing but Jesus Christ. That is a gracious purpose in God giving the law. You see the same thing in Galatians. Galatians 3.19. Why the law then? This is talking about the Mosaic Covenant. Well, it was added, added to what? The Abrahamic Covenant. That's the context. We don't have time to prove that, but it is. Why the law then? It was added because of transgressions having been ordained through angels by the agency of a mediator, that's Moses, until the seed would come. Remember the seed? This is the seed of Abraham, but more than that, it's the seed of the woman from Genesis 3.15. And who is the seed? It's Jesus, right? Until the seed would come to whom the promise had been made. Now a mediator is not for one party only, whereas God is only one. Is the law then contrary to the promises of God? May it never be. For if a law had been given which is able to impart life, then righteousness would indeed have been based on law. But the scripture has shut up everyone under sin so that, here's the purpose, so that the promise by faith in Jesus Christ might be given to those who believe. So the purpose of the law is ultimately to drive us to Christ. Okay? You see the same thing in Galatians 3.23. But before... Before faith came, we were kept in custody under the law, being shut up to the faith which was later to be revealed. Therefore, the law has become our tutor to lead us to Christ, so that we may be justified by faith. This is the purpose of the law. This is one of the purposes of the law, I should say. It is to lead us ultimately to Christ. But now that faith has come, we are no longer under a tutor, for you are all sons of God through faith in Christ Jesus. For all of you who are baptized into Christ have, been, have clothed yourselves with Christ. There is neither Jew nor Greek. There is neither slave nor free man. There is neither male nor female. For you are all one in Christ Jesus. And if you belong to Christ, then you are Abraham's descendants, heirs according to promise. You see how all of this, all of this fits together, right? God's promise to Abraham. God's, prom, God's covenant with, with the nation of Israel through Moses pointing forward to Christ. All of that is not chopped up, God dealing with people differently, new plan, plan B, plan C, plan D, plan E. This is all one plan, starting from the garden itself, right? And ultimately, as we know, before the garden, before creation. My point here is that God's purpose in the Mosaic Covenant was a gracious purpose. All right, you with me? When you read the Old Covenant, yes, there's weight, yes, there's fear, yes, there's judgment, but ultimately all of that is to serve the gracious purpose of God 
leading to Christ and our need for him. Now today we're gonna take one step further in unfolding God's gracious purposes and we will see the last Old Testament manifestation of the covenant of grace, which is God's covenant with David. This is the last manifestation in the Old Testament of the covenant of grace, and God's covenant with David. And in God's covenant with David, God promised to establish David's kingdom as an eternal kingdom. Now, before we see that in scripture and get into the details of it, we have to ask this question first. Is kingship good or bad in scripture? This is one of these things that can actually be kind of confusing and can lead to some very wrong conclusions. So, is kingship good or bad in scripture? Now, why do we have to ask that question? Well, because of this. This is 1 Samuel 8. This is the passage where the people of Israel ask Samuel for a king. So let's read this. Then all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah, and they said to him, Behold, you have grown old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king for us to judge us like all the nations. But the thing was displeasing in the sight of Samuel when they said, Give us a king to judge us. And Samuel prayed to the Lord. The Lord said to Samuel, Listen to the voice of the people in regard to all that they say to you, for they have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. Well, that sounds bad. Like all the deeds which they have done since the day that I brought them up from Egypt, even to this day, in that they have forsaken me and served other gods, so they are doing to you also. Now then, listen to their voice. However, you shall solemnly warn them and tell them of the procedure of the king who will reign over them. So Samuel spoke all the words of the Lord to the people who had asked him for a king. Ask of him a king. And he said, this will be the procedure of the king who will reign over you. He will take your sons and place them for himself in his chariots and among his horsemen, and they will run before his chariots. They, he will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and of fifties, and some to do his plowing and to reap his harvest and to make his weapons of war and the equipment for his chariots. He will also take your daughters for perfumers and cooks and bakers, he will take the best of your fields and your vineyards and your olive groves and give them to his servants. He will take a tenth of your seed and of your vineyards and give to his officers and to his servants. He will also take your male servants and your female servants and your best young men and your donkeys and use them for his work. He will take a tenth of your flocks and you yourselves will become his servants. Then you will cry out in that day because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves but the Lord will not answer you in that day. What's the word over and over again? Take, 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 take. That sounds pretty bad, right? It sounds like kings are bad news. They don't serve their people. All they do is take. And it says right here that when the people want a king, they also are rejecting the Lord as their king. That's what the Lord says to Samuel. All right, so that's on the negative side, okay? It seems like kings are bad news. But on the other hand, we have this. This is from God's covenant with Abraham. This is one of the things that God promises to Abraham in Genesis 17. I will make you exceedingly fruitful and I will make nations of you and kings will come forth from you. Okay, this is a good, these are good promises, 
right? These aren't, he's not saying, oh, and kings will come from you, and that's bad. No, this is good. So in the covenant with Abraham, we have a promise of kings coming from Abraham. And then you have this in God's covenant with Moses, with Israel through Moses in Deuteronomy 17. Look at this. This is the word of God here. When you enter the land which the Lord your God gives you, and you possess it and you live in, in it, and you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall repent. No, that's not what it says. It says, when you say, I will set a king over me like all the nations who are around me, you shall surely set a king over you whom the Lord your God chooses, one from among your countrymen. You shall set his king over yourselves. You may not put a foreigner over yourselves who is not your countryman. Moreover, he shall not multiply horses for himself, nor shall he cause the people to return to Egypt to multiply horses, since the Lord has said to you, you shall never again return that way. He shall not multiply wives for himself, or else his heart will turn away, nor shall he greatly increase silver and gold for himself. Now it shall come about when he sits on the throne of his kingdom, he shall write for himself a copy of this law on a scroll in the presence of the Levitical priests. It shall be with him and he shall read it all the days of his life, that he may learn to fear the Lord his God by carefully observing all the words of this law and these statutes, that his heart may not be lifted up above his countrymen, and that he may not turn aside from the commandment to the right or the left, so that he and his sons may continue long in his kingdom in the midst of Israel. Now, does that sound bad? No. And then one last thing, we have this, from the book of Judges, right? This is the refrain. This is before there are any kings in Israel, and this is the refrain. This is the point of the book of Judges. It's repeated four times in the book of Judges. In those days, there was no king in Israel. Every man did what was right in his own eyes. You see that? Yeah, anarchy. This is, um, this is a, the fact that there's no king in Israel is the explanation for how much of a mess it is. And it's a mess because there's no king. That's the, that is the rhetorical point of the book of Judges. It's not just a historical account of interesting and sometimes gruesome things. It has a point. That's the point. And so by the time you get into the book of Judges, you're to think, oh, man. I wish there was a king in Israel. Right? And so what's the deal? Are kings good or bad? Well, in 1 Samuel, they look bad, right? But in God's promise to Abraham and God's law to Moses and the book of Judges, they're good. And so here's the answer to this question. Kingship is good. Kingship is good. But a whole lot of kings are bad, all right? Kingship is not evil in itself. In fact, the Lord himself is the king of kings. If kingship is bad, then God can't be a king. Kingship is good. But certain kinds of kings are definitely bad. They're not a blessing to their people, but a curse. And this is what you see all through the history of, of Israel. You see good kings and bad kings. You see more bad kings than good kings. And when, when, the, when the good king is on the throne, because he's a covenant head, as we'll see in a minute, of his nation, God blesses the nation. When a bad king is on the throne, 
who does not walk in the way of the Lord, you hear that refrain over and over and over, then bad things come to the people. A good king is good, but a bad king is bad. Not just for the king, but for the nation. The problem with the people of Israel in Samuel's day is not that they want a king, the problem is the kind of king that they want. And we know the story of what happens with the king that they choose, Saul. Saul is a tall, handsome, strong man who would make a great king. But he doesn't make a great king because his heart does not belong to the Lord and Saul is a bad king who disobeys God's commandments, right? And so what does God do? This is what God does speaking to, Samuel, to, to Saul, but now your kingdom shall not endure. The Lord has sought out for himself a man after his own heart and the Lord has appointed him as ruler over his people because you have not kept what the Lord commanded you. The Lord has done this, right? The Lord has appointed another man to be king. Kings are not bad. And that man that the Lord chooses, of course, is David. And all of the, the drama and intrigue and tragedy that led up to David's, after all the drama, you remember the story, right? David is anointed, and then Saul tries to kill him, and this all this drama unfolds. And after all of that's over, you have this, leading up to the coronation, David's coronation of, as king of Israel. And after this, the Lord comes and he makes a covenant with David. So let's look at this covenant with David. This is 2 Samuel chapter 7, starting in verse 1. Now it came about when the king lived in his house and the Lord had given him rest on every side from all his enemies that the king said to Nathan the prophet, see now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains, right? The tabernacle, the tent. And Nathan said to the king, go and do all that is in your mind. The Lord is with you. But in the same night, the word of the Lord came to Nathan saying, go and say to my servant David, thus says the Lord, are you the one who should build me a house to dwell in? For I have not dwelled in a house since the day I brought up the sons of Israel from Egypt, even to this day. But I have been moving about in a tent, even in a tabernacle. Wherever I have gone with all the sons of Israel, did I speak a word with one of the tribes of Israel, which I commanded to shepherd my people Israel, saying, why have you not built me a house of cedar? Now, therefore, thus you shall say to my servant David, thus says the Lord of hosts, I took you from the pasture, from following the sheep to be ruler over my people Israel. I have been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I will make you a great name, like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them, that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again, nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I command, commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. And the Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. When your days are complete and you lie down with your fathers, I will raise up your descendant after you who will come forth from you and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me. When he commits iniquity, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. But my loving kindness shall not depart from him. As I took it away from Saul, whom I removed from before you. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. 
your throne shall be established forever. In accordance with all these words and all this vision, so Nathan spoke to David. This is one of those places where this is clearly a covenant, by the way, that doesn't use the word covenant. But we've seen that before. That's not really a problem. Other places call this a covenant, okay? Clearly what's happening here is God coming and making promises. Now here are the promises of God's covenant with David. Number one, David's name will be great. He says, I will make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. All right, so God is promising greatness to David. Second, David's people will be safe. I will also appoint a place for my people Israel and will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again. Nor will the wicked afflict them any more as formerly, even from the day that I commanded judges to be over my people Israel, and I will give you rest from all your enemies. This is, remember, tightly connected with the Abrahamic covenant. The people will flourish in a place, and they'll be safe. And then David's dynasty will endure forever. The Lord will make a house for you. We should not think house here as a building. It's a play on words. David wants to make a building for God. And God says, no, I'm going to make you a house, a dynasty. Right? The house of David is not building. It's a, it's a family line. It's a dynasty of kings. I will raise up descendants. And he says over and over again, I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. All right, those are the promises of God's covenant with David. Now, remember how the Mosaic covenant was organically connected to David's or to God's covenant promises to Abraham. The Mosaic covenant was connected to God's promises to Abraham. The same thing is true with the Davidic covenant. The Lord promises to give them the people of Israel a place and a posterity. Right? I've been with you wherever you have gone and have cut off all your enemies from before you and I'll make you a great name like the names of the great men who are on the earth. I will appoint my, a place for my people Israel and I will plant them that they may live in their own place and not be disturbed again nor will the wicked afflict them anymore as formerly. This is a promise of blessing just like he made to Abraham. The people will be safe. The people will multiply. The people will be in a land right? This is right there connected with God's promises to Abraham. And the Lord promises to dwell permanently among his people. Speaking of David's son, he shall build a house for my name. Think about what the tabernacle was. I think Jody talked about the tabernacle. No, a little bit last week, but it's a tent, right? It's, a, it's, it's there and wherever the people go, there it is, but it's a tent. You got to pack it up and you got to move it. Now God is going to dwell with his people permanently in a house. This is, this, is a, this is an upgrade from wandering around with a tent, right? Now here we are. We're going to put down roots. God's promise of his presence with his people is solidified with David. Now notice how 
as I mentioned a second ago, the Lord flips King David's desire on its head, right? Remember what David said? See now, I dwell in a house of cedar, but the ark of God dwells within tent curtains, so he wants to build a house for God. And the Lord then says, no. The Lord also declares to you that the Lord will make a house for you. So there's that play on words where David has one thing in mind and God says, nope, I have something better in mind. You're not gonna make a house for me, I'm gonna make a house for you. We're not talking about cedar and gold and stone, we're talking about a dynasty. Now, how does that, how does that play out? Well, we'll see in just a minute. Let's ask this question. Is this covenant conditional or unconditional? All right. It sounds like elements of both. Remember how we talked about this with the Abrahamic covenant? Is God's covenant with Abraham conditional or unconditional? What was the answer, do you remember? It is conditional, but what? Hmm? But God gives the conditions. Yeah, God gives the conditions. So look at this. This is later. This is Psalm 132. Thinking about God's covenant with Abraham, here's what it says. The Lord has sworn to David. So this is an oath. This is covenant language, right? The Lord has sworn to David a truth from which he will not turn back. Of the fruit of your body I will set upon your throne. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them, their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. So what's the key word there? If. <laughs> I mean, that's kind of by definition a condition, right? That, that is, that's, oh yeah. If your sons will keep my covenant and my testimony which I will teach them then their sons also shall sit upon your throne forever. Okay, this is clearly a conditional covenant. David's sons must be faithful, right? Notice the if. Now, were David's sons faithful? Yes, no, maybe so. Some of them sort of were, some of them were. Let's start from the, from, you know, the beginning. Was Solomon faithful? It started that way. All right, let's see what happens with Solomon. First Kings 11. All right, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women from the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses. 700 wives, yep and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. For Solomon went after Ashereth, the goddess of the Sidonians, and after Milcom, the detestable idol of the Ammonites. 
Solomon did what was evil in the sight of the Lord and did not follow the Lord fully as David his father had done. Then Solomon built a high place for Chemosh, the detestable idol of Moab, on the mountain which is east of Jerusalem, and for Molech, the detestable idol of the sons of Ammon. Thus also he did for all his foreign wives, who burned incense and sacrificed to their gods. Now the Lord was angry with Solomon because his heart was turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice and had commanded him concerning this thing, that he should not go after other gods. But he did not observe what the Lord had commanded. So the Lord said to Solomon, because you have done this and you have not kept my covenant and my statutes, which I have commanded you, I will surely tear the kingdom from you and will give it to your servant. But look at this. Nevertheless, I will not do it in your days for the sake of your father, David, but I will tear it out of the hand of your son. However, I will not tear away all the kingdom but I will give one tribe to your son for the sake of my servant David and for the sake of Jerusalem, which I have chosen. So were David's sons faithful? No. I mean, not even the first one, right? Does God anticipate this in, the, in his covenant with David? Do you remember this? This is back in 2 Samuel 7, verse 14. I will be a father to him and he will be a son to me if he commits iniquity. No. When he commits iniquity, not if, I will correct him with the rod of men and the strokes of the sons of men. All right, so this is, there's there's something weird going on here, right? Right? Because then at the same time, he says this. Oh, sorry, I don't even have this slide. 2 Samuel 7, 16. He says, your house and your kingdom shall endure before me forever. Your throne shall be established forever. And so, you, you see, you have both. You have conditions. You have the if of the psalm. You have when he commits iniquity. You have what actually happened within with, with Solomon in 1 Kings and yet mercy for David's sake, remember this? For Jerusalem's sake, for David's sake. So these promises of an eternal king and an eternal throne and an eternal dynasty can't be talking about normal men. Does that make sense? It can't be. So it's conditional, and yet at the same time, it's unconditional. In other words, God will bring it to pass. He will bring it to pass. So what's going on? This covenant with David is about David's sons, yes, but also about David's son. Right? So just like the Abrahamic covenant, What's the ultimate fulfillment? What is the seed of Abraham? It's it's Christ, right? Who is the son? Who is the king? It's Christ, it's Jesus. Now look at this, this is Acts two. So this is the apostle Peter preaching on the day of Pentecost. 
And everything is self-consciously tied back to this covenant with David. So men of Israel, listen to these words. Jesus the Nazarene, a man attested to you by God with miracles and wonders and signs which God performed through him in your midst. Just as you yourselves know, this man delivered over by the predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to a cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death, but God raised him up again, putting an end to the agony of death since it was impossible for him to be held in its power. For David says of him, do you know what psalm this is? Anybody? This is Psalm 16. All right. I saw the Lord always in my presence, for he is at my right hand so that I will not be shaken. Therefore, my heart was glad and my tongue exalted. Moreover, my flesh also will live in hope because you will not abandon my soul to Hades, nor allow your Holy One to undergo decay. You have made known to me the ways of life. You will make me full of gladness with your presence. This is one of the things we'll go on in a second, but remember, over and over and over again, the Psalms. You know what is most, the, 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 the most commonly quoted book in the New Testament, from the Old Testament, is the Psalms. Did you know that? What's the most common psalm quoted in the New Testament? I know some of you know this. I know you know it. <laughs> Anyone know besides Jody? Besides David? <laughs> it's, one, it's Psalm 110. All right. You know what Psalm 110 says? Yeah. Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. Okay. That is the, when, the, when the apostles are preaching and thinking about Jesus, that's what they say over and over and over again. He must reign until all of his enemies are a footstool for his feet. That's what they think of Jesus. Huh, maybe we should think of that of Jesus too. <clears throat> so now, Psalm 16, all right? So many of these Psalms of David are put into the mouth of Jesus or are clearly about Jesus, including this one. So here's what Peter says. After quoting Psalm 16, brethren, I may confidently say to you regarding the patriarch David that he both died and was buried and his tomb is with us to this day. He's like pointing to it. It's over there. David's dead. And so because he was a prophet and knew that God had swore to him, sworn to him with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne. This is the God's covenant with David, 2 Samuel 7. Because he was a prophet and knew that God had sworn to him to seat, with an oath, to seat one of his descendants on his throne, he looked ahead and spoke of the resurrection of the Christ, the Messiah. That he was neither abandoned to Hades nor did his flesh, flesh suffer decay. This Jesus God raised up again, to which we are all witnesses. Therefore, having been exalted to the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured forth this day, I'm sorry, he has poured forth this which you both see and hear, for it was not David who ascended into heaven, but he himself says, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is talking about not David, 
Not one of David's natural sons, but the son of David, Jesus. And therefore, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. All right. So what's going through Peter's mind as he's preaching to, the, to his people, the Jews? Well, you can read the whole sermon, but he's thinking Abraham, he's thinking Moses, he's thinking David, right? All of that. When it comes to preaching Jesus in the New Testament, that's, what, that's where they're going. And that shouldn't surprise us, all right? It should only surprise us if we think that there's a firewall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. There is not a firewall between the Old Testament and the New Testament. When the apostles are preaching Jesus from the scriptures, they're preaching the Old Testament. When the apostle Paul says to Timothy, all scriptures, you, you, you know the scriptures from, from childhood, you've known the sacred writings, the scriptures that are able to make you wise for salvation. All scriptures are God-breathed and profitable for doctrine, reproof, correction, instruction of righteousness. What scriptures is he talking about? He's talking about the Old Testament, okay? This is how we have to think. The Old Testament is a Christian book, all right? This is not a book that's for them, and then the New Testament is for us. The Old Testament is our book. It's, a Chris, it's Christian scripture. You all with me? Now, why am I hammering on that? Because most of us do not know the Old Testament. We've been given, we've, many of us have inherited a, a theological system that teaches us that no, the Old Testament actually is, you know, it's interesting and it's true, but it's not really ours. Well, the, the apostles sure thought it was theirs. The apostles thought it was ours, right? All of this is moving, moving, moving forward and culminating in Christ. Not as plan B. This has always been the plan. All right. There's a whole lot more we could say about the Davidic covenant. Trust me. <laughs> but we've got to be done next week. And so next week... It's all been leading up to this, okay? The new covenant, what we have in Christ, and it's amazing. Organically, intimately, totally connected to everything that has been moving forward in the, new, in the Old Testament. All right? Yes. Where is the blood in that covenant? I was afraid someone was gonna ask that. <laughs> uh, I would say it's in the it's kind of tagged on to the curses of the, of the old covenant, of the Mosaic covenant. Right? The curse, the, the promise of judgment. I'm gonna, you know, tear the kingdom away from you. I, I, will, I will punish you. There, those, there's punishment that's all through there. Um, if they don't keep faithful. Would you say anything else about that, Jody? That makes sense? Sort of. Sort of. Good. Hey, I'm happy with sort of. 
Yeah. I mean, when you see the, the covenants. Yes. You, you don't really see a ceremony with this covenant. Yeah. But it's clearly called a covenant. So, you know, we'll let God figure that out. We're, we're not, yeah. If God calls it a covenant, we'll, we'll be okay with that. Any other questions or thoughts about this? I thought I was going to go way over, so I was like running real fast, and now we're done early, so that's weird. Any other thoughts or questions? Okay. Well, let's be done. Let's pray. Dear Father, thank you for the Lord Jesus. Thank you for this promise of a, of a king who will reign forever and ever on the throne of David. And I pray, Lord, that our hearts would be um, filled with wonder and reverence and faith as we think about you keeping these promises. We thank you, Lord, that you, Lord Jesus, are in fact reigning now. As your word says over and over again, that you are making all of your enemies a footstool for your feet. This is not something that you will do. This is what you are doing now, having sat down at the right hand of God. And I pray that you'd fill us with faith about that um, and hope for you conquering our own sins, the sins of our family, the people that we love, even of our nation. Lord, continue to take your power and reign, we pray. Please be with us, Lord, as we worship you. Open our hearts with humility and joy, we pray in Jesus' name, amen.